Welcome back, everyone, to the Dice Pirates. This is episode eight. Today, we're going to be talking about some of our favorite games that we played over the holidays. This is our first episode of 2021. I'm your captain, Ian, joined by my recently reinstated first mate, Matt. How's it going, Matt? I got promoted and it feels so good. Back to first mate. I love it. That's awesome. I'm feeling great now. You know, I figured the new year was a time for to give people second chances, give them, a, you know, an opportunity to prove themselves. Please don't let me down on this. I will not abuse the power that you've given me and I won't let you down. I do want to talk to you about a small fire in the poop deck. We're starting out real strong. This is going real well so far. Um, Matt, what's been going on? We have not done a podcast in quite a while now. Over the holidays, most of January, what's been happening? What have you been up to? Oh, gosh. Just had a good holiday break with the fam, uh, played a lot of board games, and hung out with the kids, and uh, really had a great time. Yeah, it's, it's good to get back to the podcast, though. It's just sort of uh, our season two, in a way. We took a little hiatus, but we got some, uh, got some good things planned for everybody, and I'm excited to be back. We played a we played a lot of board games over the holiday season. We really got to delve into some of the fun ones that we really enjoyed. But instead of trying to get through all of those, we wanted to pick out just a couple that we really enjoyed and we felt were worthy of talking about. But before we get to that, what do you want to talk about this week, Matt? Like, what have you been playing? Is there anything you want to get off your chest? What's happening? Sure. Yeah, I want to kind of open up with one of uh, my Christmas presents, actually, that I got. My beautiful and amazing wife uh, bought me a couple of really cool tabletop RPG books. And I wanted to talk about one of them uh, here uh, on this episode because I think it's really fascinating. It is uh, Merkborg, and it is spelled Morkborg, M-O-R-K-B-O-R-G. But it's pronounced, as best I can uh, gather, Merkborg, which is, I believe it is maybe Swedish or Dutch, or it is some Scandinavian language for dark fort. And it is a incredibly dark moody atmospheric tabletop rpg game that is set in a grim world that sort of evokes uh the dark souls game meets scandinavian death metal meets old school rpgs it's a wild mashup of aesthetic and vibe but it is a really cool uh concept for a tabletop role-playing game can't wait to get it to the table i mean the thing that sets it apart is its commitment to like simplicity you know, we've been playing D&D for a few years, and D&D can be very obtuse for a newcomer a player. It is, you know, the player's handbook alone is, you know, hundreds of pages, and uh, combine that with a Dungeon Master's Guide and a Monster's Manual and all the myriad of supplements you need, it can feel completely overwhelming to get into. And all the various rules defining character creation and combat, how the world works and lore and backstory it can feel very monumental and the game can feel sort of bogged down in its rules, but Merkborg really pushes all that aside and gets the role-playing experience down to just the basic essence of like building a simple character using simple rules to define combat and world. And then, uh, then just leaving it really to story and atmosphere to like drive the gameplay. And it has one heck of an atmosphere. This book is an incredible piece of art Honestly, it's worth picking up just to look at. It's full of really dark, creepy, weird art that tells the story of this strange world that is dying. It is sort of a, almost like apocalyptic fantasy fiction. So basically, you're playing heroes in a world that is near the apocalypse. And are you going to try and prevent it? Or are you just going to try and enrich yourself uh, and make the most of what little time you have left? It's fascinating. It's strange. It's weird. Uh, I love it. I think it's worth taking a look at if you are looking for something that's a D&D alternative that is streamlined and simple. And if you like dark fantasy. That definitely, I loved when you showed me this game because, like you said, it is super simple, but it also has this amazingly Lovecraftian style art and it's absolutely gorgeous it in a way it did it did make me think of what you know what my parents are always like oh this is what D D must be you know like the kind of the idea of witchcraft these you know demonic symbols and while the game isn't all about that you know that's always what i imagine my parents would think about when i talked about D D. so I, I thought that was pretty funny yeah, I mean, definitely, like, I guess, forewarned, if you have, like, a sensitivity to, like, occult images or things that maybe evoke, like, witchcraft or dark stuff like that, if, you, if you're not into that or if you, if you want to avoid that for personal reasons, it's a little edgy. It does sort of evoke some dark symbols. 
But the game itself is, uh, while it's dark, it also has a weird tongue-in-cheek sense of humor. You're, you can obviously uh, tell you're not supposed to take this super seriously. Again, the things that set it apart to me as somebody that's been DMing Dungeons & Dragons for a while is how simple it is to set up and roll up a character, how simple it makes the stats for players to understand instead of all these complicated numbers associated with like strength and charisma and all these different stats, and then how those contribute to a modifier and then how this works and that works. This game uses four basic skills that are represented only by the modifier. So you might have like a plus three in strength, and that's your only stat that you need to know for that. So if you roll something that has to do with strength, you just roll the d20, add three, you succeed or you fail, and the game moves on from there. Combat is really simple. It basically moves, pulls out a lot of the complexity and leaves a game that's more about story. So I think it would be great for a tabletop role-playing group that really likes atmosphere and really wants to tell an interesting story. There's pages upon pages in this book that are really just about lore and story hooks to get you going. Telling the story of this strange dying world and dark magic and these ancient gods, the basilisk, who are manipulating events for various reasons. It's uh, it's really fascinating. It's really cool. Um, and like I said, it's worth looking at. I think it would be a book that even if you never played it, it would like serve as like inspiration for even you know modifying or simplifying your Dungeons and Dragons experiences. The other thing I'll mention about it, and then we can move on, is it has a really awesome fan community online. We haven't even played this yet, and I've already been deep into. Uh, the user-generated content online. So if you buy it, all you really have to buy is the book, and then you can go online and download maps for additional dungeons, additional monsters and content that fans have created in the fan community, and it's all really high quality and awesome. And the publisher is supporting the fans by you know, allowing people to publish and create all this great content. So if you're looking, if you're into tabletop role-playing and I look forward to us maybe doing an episode just on tabletop role-playing and I'll probably talk about this game more, but this was uh, if you've been, if you're an experienced player and you're looking for something different, I think this is worth a look. So uh, Ian, what, uh, what's, what's been going on with you? Uh, what, what do you want to talk about? So actually I want to talk about um, a board game that is not out yet and actually does not even have a Kickstarter out yet. Have you ever heard of the video game Slay the Spire by any chance? I'm familiar with it a little bit. I've heard the title. I know it was kind of a an indie game that was popular. Uh, still, is probably still is pretty popular, but I don't know a lot about it. So Slay the Spire is what is called a roguelite game. It is a deck building game. It is actually going to be getting a Kickstarter in spring this year where they're going to turn it into a board game. I'm super excited about this because I think that the idea of turning this game into a board game is actually going to capitalize on the strengths of what make it fun to play anyways. So Slay the Spire is a deck-building roguelite game. A roguelite game is based around the idea of it's, a, it's essentially a dungeon crawl where you're going through a randomized dungeon every time and you get random loot every time. And so you're trying to build up your character and you're trying to get as far as possible. There will be some mechanics that let you, you know, every time you die, you get a little bit stronger, things like that. But in general, it's about doing the same thing over and over again, but it's randomized. So you have some fun with it. I think this is going to be really interesting as a board game, however, because it's already based around the idea of deck building. You're going to be drafting cards. You're going to collect cards as you defeat monsters, as you move through the dungeon. You're going to find more and more cards that are going to make you stronger. You're going to find power-ups. The Each turn, each uh, turn-based combat revolves around playing your cards, trying to defend against the monster's attack, and building combos that are going to do massive damage over time. So that's a mechanic that already is very entrenched in games and board games themselves, where the deck-building mechanic is pretty solidified as a solid mechanic. And... Uh, the whole roguelite mechanic of doing the same thing over and over again is really what you do already every time you open a board game. Every time you open it up, it's a new experience and you start it from the beginning again. So just everything about the game, and I think what made it fun for people to play as a video game, is also going to perfectly correlate into board games. And I'm super excited to see how that turns out. That sounds fascinating. I'm, I'm Now I'm sort of intrigued by this too. It sounds completely up my alley with my unending love of all things dungeon crawl. 
And uh, with it already being sort of based around the deck building mechanic, it's like a perfect uh, transition into uh, a board game, it sounds like. Very much so. We have had video games that have transferred into board games, but I feel like oftentimes they have to abstract the mechanics of the game somewhat. They have to sort of approximate what the experience of the video game is. But in this situation, despite the fact that there won't be graphics on screen, it'll just be cards, I think is perfectly designed for that. And hopefully when it does come out, we can actually play that, especially since it's going to be a cooperative deck building game, which will be really fascinating to play. So that's that's what I'm excited about. Awesome. Yeah, that sounds cool. Really looking forward to that, but I am also really looking forward to getting to our discussion on our main topic today. So we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with our discussion on some of our favorite games from this holiday. All right, welcome back to the Dice Pirates, and we're going to dive into a triple header tonight. We're going to be talking about three different games that we're going to do sort of mini reviews of that are some of the highlights of games that we played over our uh, holiday break this year. Uh, We uh, got to try out some new games and uh, got some new favorites that are in the rotation. So, uh, Ian, why don't you kick us off with uh, the first game in the triple header, uh, a game that I haven't played, but I'm super excited to hear more about, which is Call to Adventure. So I want to talk about Call to Adventure, specifically the new version they released, the Stormlight Archive. So Call to Adventure, it's a deck, it's kind of a deck building, more of an engine building game. But the reason I want to talk about this game is the mechanics and the way that they've designed this game makes it a perfect like book adaptation, just like a world generator adapt- adaptation. Because the entire basis of the game and the way it revolves is you are um, trying to create a character. The goal of the designers, what they have stated, is that they wanted to gamify the process of making a D&D character. They wanted to make it so that, you know, like, oh, how does your backstory work? What is the goal? What, are you, what is your character supposed to be? They wanted to make that the game. And so the game works on that basis. You start out and you're given um, a couple cards to choose from, and you have to choose your origin, where your character came from, your motivation, what drives them, and your destiny. Now... The first two are going to kind of be how you play the game. They're going to define the actions you take. Your destiny is going to be your endgame scoring. So it all sort of ties together. So you have this idea of who your character is and what they're trying to do. And then over the course of the game, you're going to collect additional cards. And these will be either perhaps uh, you can gain allies that will help you on your trip. You can go ahead and gain uh, traits. So your character might be perhaps a nomad who was driven by guilt from their tribe. And so you can gain traits like they're a steadfast individual. You have cards where you have combat encounters and you can take one path or the other. You're always given an option of two paths to take. And so you get to choose which one you want. And so each step of your character, everything you do is a choice. You're saying, okay, who do I want my character to be? What is my next step? And how does this change who I am? And it all ties really nicely into the mechanics of the game as well. It has a really fun rune rolling system. It's essentially just two-sided dice with different options on either side. And they're super satisfying to roll. They're very fun to get to toss out. And there really is this engine building mechanic to it. As you gain more cards, you gain access to more powerful runes. You can take on more powerful enemies. And what I like about it specifically is that because of the way it does, because it prioritizes the story of your character, it is able to really take the characteristics of a world and it is able to actually make them super interesting and actually bring them out within the game itself. So I want to give a shout out to my sister Trina, who we played this game together a lot and uh, she has helped me a lot with the coming up with the the reason that I like this game so much um, is just that every single card is referencing something within the series of books for in this instance the stormlight archive a series by brandon sanderson and everything has not only it doesn't it's not just flavor text it actually does tie to the mechanics of the card you're actually with so there are like reasons that you might choose this card and they actually do a good job of tying the um, story behind the card to the mechanics of the game but that just is because the game itself is open-ended on one hand, but it also just builds on itself as being a story-driven game, despite it, you know, kind of ostensibly being an engine builder. Another thing that I really like about this game is that it's designed to be a cooperative experience. So every time you're playing, you're trying to defeat Odium, who is the, you know, big bad of the, the series. He is the one that you're all working together with. And so you do have an overall winner, you know, whoever gets the most points, but if everybody manages to defeat him, everybody wins. So playing with a new player 
is going to be way more fun because, you know, they still get to win even if they don't get the most points. And, uh, you know, of course, at the end, after you've won, they uh, one of the final rules of the book is that you have to tell your story. So you take your character and you lay it out and you get to tell the story of your character and who they were. I'm really excited to play it with you at some point, Matt, because I think this is right up your alley and really just like exploring the story of a game and, and really making that the focus point of it. Actually, it's funny you said that uh, I, when you mentioned that you're wanting to talk about this, the name sounded familiar to me. And then I went and uh, looked back at my Amazon list that I have like saved games I want to buy. And I remember that I had added Call to Adventure to that list like um, a couple of months ago, uh, not the Stormlight Archives version, but the original. And I had, didn't know anything about it, but it popped up as like a recommended thing on Amazon. And I was like, Yes, al- uh, Amazon algorithm, you are correct. I do like that because it is like right up my alley. The first thing I noticed looking at this game and not having played it is really gorgeous fantasy art. Like not just generic, you know, any old like Wizards and Elf looking stuff, but just like really well done paintings, evocative, moody, cool. Like right away, I'm pulled in to want to play this game. And then those rune dice are so unique and fun looking. I just want to like throw those out and just play around with those. And uh, so the components in this look pretty spectacular. The component design is really nice. Like you said, the artwork is great. Call to Adventure was originally a standalone game. It didn't necessarily have a tie-in, but they did release an expansion called Name of the Wind. And then, of course, the Stormlight Archive, which is its own standalone thing. But I just I think it is really unique in the way that they've managed to devise this system that can really be adapted to any story setting that you want and reflect it so well. And like you said, like the component design is gorgeous. Uh, being able to handle these runes, they're a nice, solid, hard plastic. And getting a whole bunch of them in your hand and just rolling it, I mean, it's it's honestly, it's actually better than rolling a handful of dice. It just feels so good. It looks cool. It looks very, like, uh, kind of arcane and mystical to, like, be casting out these runes. So, question, though, if you're if you're not familiar with the Stormlight Archives books, which I'm not, even though I do, I know they're very popular, but I just haven't got around to reading them, is the Stormlight Archives game accessible if you don't know a lot about that world, or should you pick up the base uh, Call to Adventure, the original version? It absolutely is not a prerequisite to understand the source material. That's actually the situation that I was in. I had not yet read those books going into playing the game my sister had. And if you are a fan of the books, you're going to get a lot more out of it playing just because you're going to understand the flavor text behind everything. And maybe you might get more out of the flavor text um, playing the original Call to Adventure. But you know, you're still going to get the same rough experience of choosing your character. You're still going to have to choose which paths you take. And while some of them may have references or they may be specific analogs to the book themselves, it all feels fairly self-explanatory. Like, you know who your character is and you may not know exactly how you fit into the lore of the actual universe, but it's still going to be a really fun experience. Like, I definitely didn't feel like I lacked anything going in and I didn't enjoy the game any less not knowing the background of it. That's really cool. Yeah. So I think, uh, I guess it sounds like either option could be good if you're interested in fantasy stories and a game that's about creating a story. Your description of it makes me feel like the game is basically about creating your character's story arc over the course of the game. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, like you can look at it as just a, a real basic, you know, engine builder. Okay. I'm going to take the choice that has to be, this is going to be the perfect one every time. I'm going to focus on these, but it's so much more fun when you actually pay attention to who your character is and getting to choose, you know, okay, this is my destiny. This is who I want my character to be. You know, what, what choice am I going to do? Am I going to betray an old friend or am I going to go ahead and, you know, like uphold a promise I made to my clan back, you know, at home, like stuff like that. Like you get to, it's more fun when you really lean into that aspect of it. And the game designers knew that too. Like I said, you know, they actually made, made that something you did as part of the cleanup of the game is that everybody needs to take a moment and say, okay, this is my character and this is his story. I'm going to tell you all the story of who I created during the game, which is, I think, a really nice touch because it really helps people lean into that aspect of it. The story, like, you know, the storytelling of the game is, is where I think the strength of it lies. So you could kind of like min-max and treat it like an engine builder, but if you want to kind of lightly role play, you could do that too. Absolutely, yeah, and even more, you know, so than lightly role play. That's where having the uh, the ability to play cooperatively in this as well, 
makes it much more um, new player friendly because you're encouraged to help each other out. There are cards you can play to assist other players um, while they're doing combat encounters. And so if you're playing cooperatively, you're going to play a lot more of those. You're going to help people choose what they should go for next to help them in max. But at the same time, because you're working cooperatively, you're less worried about your individual game you have more options ahead of you in terms of what you want to go for i love that so it's cooperative but there still is an overall winner based on points yeah there's so that you still get points overall like there's still a, a winner and that's because you can play it competitively as well you just don't have the main adversary to fight instead you're just competing for points you do still get points there is still kind of an overall winner but in general terms, the winners are just if you all beat the final villain then you're all considered winners so there is kind of like a, a you know, you can win twice in that kind of situation, but there's no like losers in that sense. You know what that sounds like? A game that's a mix of like cooperative and uh, competitive. It sounds a lot like Roombound. I knew it was. I knew it was coming. I knew it was coming. I, uh, I <laughs> Continuing was the streak, character. finding a way to mention Roombound in every episode. No, I like. I think you made a great point. It sounds like, and again, me not having played the game, but it sounds like this is a great newcomer-friendly game if you want to introduce somebody to board gaming as a hobby because you can help them along you can play it in a cooperative or competitive way and that's a great uh that's a great thing in a board game oh absolutely and that's one of the things we talked about in you know our gateway board games episode as well is just that you know making sure everybody actually enjoys the experience in any game where you can encourage other people or make it so losing is less terrible that's always going to be a good game to get people into so i really wanted i just i wanted to talk about this game just because i think the way it really just ties in story the way it can really take any setting and make it come to life within the game mechanics itself i think it's just really well done and i definitely would recommend this to anybody it's like if you don't want to pick up the stormlight archive version pick up some of the older versions just give it a shot i think especially if your game is if your group is at all into you know storytelling or anything like that i, I would give this a shot all right well that sounds really cool that is call to adventure from uh Brotherwise games and uh sounds like it's uh worth a look if you like fantasy if you like story if you like weird rune dice give it a look ian what do you want to talk about next on the uh dice Paris triple header here so the second game i want to talk about is a game we did mention briefly um in uh, one of our previous intros uh but i want to give it some more time because i think it deserves it i want to talk about parks uh it came out in 2019 and uh distributed by keymaster games this game is absolutely gorgeous place super fun we have to, we definitely need to give this um the attention it deserves yes we uh we've played park several times now and uh i've had a blast with it every time and i think that uh the reason this game has uh caught on the reason that uh, i think we've had so much fun in it is really tied to how incredibly <laughs> well designed it is it is uh, one of these premier, almost kind of like luxury board game experience. Not that it's uh, expensive, but just kind of like really classy looking games like Wingspan that is, when it's all spread out on the table, it's like a real work of art. Uh, the basic setup of Parks is that it is, uh, at heart, a engine-building uh, worker placement game. But it is in the style of, tell, it's in the theme of hikers exploring the national parks. You have this great little tableau that represents kind of the trail. You have these awesome little uh, hiker uh, meeples that you lay down and you move your way down this linear track, uh, collecting resources and activating each location as you arrive there. Uh, you then can trade in your resources to uh, purchase uh, parks, to visit national parks and collect those cards and you get victory points for the cards that you visit. Uh, the most striking element of the game, other than the charming like wooden pieces, is that all of these parks, uh, all these cards that represent the national parks, feature art from the National Parks Art Series. So these are really compelling uh, works of art that uh, uh, from great artists in a variety of styles that are uh, depict all the different national parks. And they are gorgeous, beautiful to look at. Each card has a cool little fact about the national park. I actually learned about national parks I'd never even heard of uh, playing this game. So it's just uh, it's just a really compelling, uh, really fun game. It is absolutely gorgeous. And like you said, just the artwork elevates this game. It was actually part of the 59 Park series, which I think you mentioned, which was a group of artists coming in and donating their artwork to help keep the, the parks funded. Um, and 
building that into the game itself was, I think, an absolutely genius idea because it is just such a, it, it's a relaxing experience. And I like this game um, a lot, just as an example of, I think, how you can pick something that may seem mundane at first, but if you really are able to give that extra mile and put the component work in, then I think it, it will stand out. Like, I mean, this game could have been a generic fantasy setting. You could be collecting swords and, and knights and wizards and then go collect a random quest. That sounds awesome. Can we play that game? That sounds good. Yeah, I mean, that sounds a lot like, you know, Lords of Waterdeep. Um, but when you do something like when you put something like this, when you put effort into it, I mean, the resources you get are all, you know, they're wooden, they're colorful. Every single wild is a different animal. And they all look, they're all well made they all look really fun on the table and everything about the game is just is really beautifully designed they paid attention to the way they do all of it and i think it's like i I don't think it's the best like it's not the most interesting mechanically definitely um just because i mean if it is fairly basic you're just moving your you're moving your characters down the line you take actions there is some strategy as to when you move but overall like in terms of complexity it's not a complex game like it's fairly easy to understand which is of course you know in in its favor but i think it is elevated by the component design and by the theme of the game more so than most other games we've played i agree i think that when i think about parks i think it it speaks to what i'm seeing as a trend in like modern board games where people are treating uh, board game design and craft like a true art form. And it's a really good example of how a good game can turn into a great game just by the visual design. Parks is a game that you want to interact with when you see it spread out on the table. The little trail tableau is attractive and cool looking. Your little miniatures that represent your hikers and the different resources that you collect along the way. It'd probably be helpful to explain the basic mechanics of the game a little more. The hook is that you are moving your hiker down a trail. And probably the only significant, I I think, strategic kind of element to the game is that it's a linear track. And when you move your hiker forward onto a space to collect whatever resources are there, you can't move back. So uh, you kind of have to push your luck and determine, do I go all the way to the end of the track to get something really good that I need, or do I just kind of inch my way down? The risk of like inching your way down slowly is that another one of the players could land on the place you want, and now you can't go there if it's occupied. And so you can get boxed out, uh, potentially, of, of something that you need. So there's a little bit of push your luck, a little bit of placement strategy in terms of moving your hiker down the trail, but it's not that complex. It's a good game. It's a good worker placement game, but it's a, not a great worker replacement game based on the mechanics alone. There are a few other kind of variables in there to make it interesting. You can buy gear at a shop. So you can buy like binoculars and sleeping bags and other things. And they give you uh, different powers that let you kind of modify the rules of the game. Uh, the resources that you collect are these fun little kind of abstractions of like experiencing nature. You collect sunlight and water and trees and mountains, and you spend those to collect these park cards. And that's your basic kind of scoring mechanism is getting these parks. Occasionally the gear lets you modify that. Like maybe instead of uh, spending water, you can spend mountains or whatever. So you can kind of like mix things up a little bit. But the overall gameplay is pretty simple, pretty chill. But again, it's the quality of the design, how fun all of this is to sit down and play with, to hold these like nice wooden pieces, to look at this beautiful art. Uh, All that really elevates it. And I think it shows that like board game craft is as much like art as it is science. Like the game design is important. It needs to be a compelling game, but like great art and visuals can actually make a, like a fun game into a great game. Because I think Parks is like genuinely a great game. Finding a game that is able to set itself apart because of the way that it looks is, is really great. And I think that's, you know, there's like, I think that's also really helpful to get people interested in games as well because you know i've put this down in front of you know friends that aren't as into board games and they will jump right into it just because you know it is colorful it is bright it doesn't have that same dense feeling that you normally get from these games and i think there's also something said about how the way the game doles things out to you really easily i mean every place you go you're going to get resources you're going to have stacks of resources in front of you most rounds you're going to end with getting a park and i think that's One of the things that makes uh, these games like, you know, like a lot more fun for new players to play as opposed to games that did have just a victory point counter token, you know, ticking up, you know, or a game like Catan where you're just expanding out. And it's like, okay, well, am am I winning? Am I doing a good job? You know, in these games, 
more parks, you're doing better. And, you know, for, you know, like if you're new to the game, you just, all right, yeah, I'm going to go, I'm going to get more parks and it's fun to get them. And that, that feedback loop is, is really well designed. It does have a good feedback loop. It's very tactile, like, because when you land on a, on a space, you're right, you get to grab a couple of these little wooden tokens. So you have a nice little pal going that kind of shows like, oh, I'm, I'm having all these experiences. I'm doing all this cool stuff. And so it is, it is very tactile. It is very satisfying. Uh, even if you're not doing particularly well, you kind of feel like you're on your own little journey and having fun. It's not a super uh, cutthroat game. Uh, I don't think there are any significant like uh, ways that you can uh, hinder other players other than blocking them from being able to land on a space. And it's pretty rare that I think you would probably do that intentionally. Like you kind of know somebody's going for it so you could go there and block them out. That doesn't come up as much because you are kind of on your own journey. But you can get blocked on the path from time to time. Other than that, it's not really a cutthroat game. There's no gotcha cards. You're not really going to like zinger anybody. So it's good for uh, a family game night that you want to keep chill and low key. And there's not a lot of hurt feelings. Uh, I think this is just a great one. And it has all that. It has a lot of crossover appeal. I mean, somebody that's just into nature, into hiking, uh, people that like to visit national parks could uh, just appreciate this game just because of the quality of the theme. So uh, I think this is a great one. Uh, and I think it would uh, potentially have been earned a place on our gateway board games list from several episodes back because it is very accessible way to introduce that worker placement mechanic with a fun, aesthetically pleasing uh, setup. It really is. Yeah, we definitely are harping on like the look of the game a lot, just, you know, like building it up. But I think that's important to talk about. There was a game that our, our friend Aaron, you know, guest of the podcast, he was talking to me about. It's called Ethnos. Um, and uh, he would demo this game at various CMON conferences. And one of the things he would find is that people were really turned off by the look of the game. It was an amazingly designed hand-building area control game, but it had the most generic high fantasy theme to it that you could have put onto a game that didn't really match that theme whatsoever. And so he would try to get people interested in it. And unless they sat down and actually played the game, they would just walk on by because it was just like every other game, you know, at, at a lot of these conventions doesn't look very unique but finding a game that can really stand out from the crowd like parks does and does in a way that is fantastic is, is definitely is definitely worth talking about oh man i'm so glad you mentioned ethnos i was actually kind of racking my brain right now as we we're talking for an example of kind of the inverse like parks is a good example of a it's a decent board game it's a good board game but it's made great by how good it is ethnos i think is a good example of a game that's by all accounts very good but has been really flown under the radar and not been as popular because of how bland it looks. Not only does Ethnos have this kind of generic fantasy thing, but if you pull up pictures of it, just Google Ethnos board game, it has hands down the most boring looking game board you've ever seen. It's just a map with a little track all around the edges of it. It looks like something out of a history textbook from your sixth grade civics class. Uh, and its components are just these little colored discs I mean, it is the most passable, most easy to overlook thing uh, that you could imagine. And I remember being at the CMON conference a few years ago, and this game was out to play. I think it was either out to demo or it was in the library, and nobody was touching Ethnos because it looks so boring. And I walked past it a million times, and then I had several people tell me, you know, actually, that's like low-key, like one of the best games here. So, you know, I think one of the lessons from all of that as for like game designers is that board gaming is a tactile sensory experience. Uh, you, it needs to engage you visually to want to pull you in and the game components need to have that thing of like, oh, I want to pick up and hold that. You know what I mean? Like uh, when a board game just has plain like plastic discs and circles and things, you're just like, eh, whatever. But these little, like, uh, a little wooden moose, like you see in, like, parks. <laughs> yeah. Like a tiny moose and a little pine tree and a little sun, like, and then a little wooden hiker guy. It's like, ooh, I want to play with those. Those look really fun. I want to hold those. I want to interact with them. I want to play this game. And so I think the it, it, we are kind of, like, over-hyping or, or talking a lot maybe about how good parks looks. But you kind of can't understate how much that elevates the game and makes it really fun. I think if it were less, if, if the pieces are more generic, 
if the art was as bland as what you see on some less prestigious board games. I actually think Parks might be a pretty forgettable worker placement game. One final thought on Parks. Uh, our buddy Matt, who never hesitates to splurge on luxury components, bought the neoprene like placemat for uh, Parks. And uh, it's like, mm, chef's kiss. It just takes it to the next level. So if you want to like, uh, if you want to elevate your uh, Parks experience, I actually highly recommend the rollout neoprene mat to just take it to the next level of uh, visual excess. Taking a game that already has fantastic components and just moving that extra mile. I do want to talk about one last thing before we go on from Parks, and it is the insert that comes with the the box. Um, when you put the game when you put the game away, uh, some games will just have you throw things in baggies and just toss it in there, and it's just kind of a mess. It's not it's not great. It's hard to find things afterwards. Parks has probably the best game insert. I have ever seen in any game ever. Putting things away, I enjoy putting the game away as much as I enjoy playing the game itself. Everything fits perfectly. Things slide underneath each other. It, it's like it's like watching somebody playing Tetris who's good at Tetris because everything just falls into place and it looks good after it's done. It's one of the most satisfying experiences putting a game away that you'll ever have. And I, I don't know why I like that so much. It's just so satisfying to put this game away. It's fantastic. I can't recommend <laughs> it enough. Sometimes Ian just takes Parks out just to put it away again. I mean, I've seen him do it. He doesn't even play it. He just sets it all up and then puts it right away. I just get stuck in a kind of loop. I'm just saying, I got to put it away again. I got to put it away again. No, you're not wrong. I almost feel like a, a, a topic for an episode could be games with great inserts. Uh, there's no, there's no bigger slap in the face than buying a board game and it's just an empty box and you're like, oh, okay, I guess I'll be getting my own baggies and little things for all these billion components. Uh, yeah, Parks is just it's like thoughtful design all the way through. It really is, yeah. From storage to tactile sensation to visuals, it's a thoughtfully designed uh, board game that is pretty fun to game, pretty fun to play, very fun to play, but also very chill. And that's something that you kind of need in your rotation particularly our game group, like we really, uh, I guess, kind of like uh, oscillate between like very heavy, like Euros or very fighty, like uh, competitive games like Blood Rage or something like we, you know, we can mix it up or dungeon crawls with a lot of dice and combat. Every once in a while, you just need to take a chill and do a game that's very zen. that's very relaxing. Uh, the kind of game that if you're uh, growing up, you can uh, pour a glass of wine with and just kind of have a quiet evening. Put a John Denver album and just uh, zone out. Everybody needs a couple of those games for sure. I think we would both 100% recommend this game. And additionally, uh, 1% of all sales are actually donated to the National Park Service when you buy this game. So you're not only buying a great game, you're actually help donating to a great cause. So definitely pick that out if you can. But Matt, what is the last game we're going to talk about before we turn this entire podcast into a parks gush? <laughs> Yeah, so for our final game of the Dice Pirates triple header here, we're going to talk, talk about uh, a game that uh, we've had a lot of fun with recently, and that is It's a Wonderful World, published in the U.S. by uh, Lucky Duck Games. And it is uh, one of the most interesting takes on the basic engine builder mechanic that I've run into in a while. This is a game that's been pretty popular in 2020. We've seen it on the uh, BGG hotness list. And uh, our gaming group has kind of an interesting history with this because the first time we played it, we completely botched the rules in a sort of hilarious way. Ended up finishing the game. Like we, we changed the rules just enough to make it totally different, but we somehow were able to like play a complete session of it. And we got to the end and I remember thinking like, man, that doesn't quite live up to the hype. That was weird. I don't know what the why everyone's so excited about this game, why it's so popular right now. Shortly after uh, we played it, our buddy Matt texted the group and said, uh, actually, we made some significant errors <laughs> in how we played that game. And so it came to the table again about a month later, and immediately I was like, oh, I get it now. This is really, really fun. Uh, the first thing you need to know about It's a Wonderful World is it has the most inscrutable theme of any board game that I think we've played recently. It has this uh, really compelling art. I like the game's overall visual design. It has this funky, futuristic, very comic book, graphic novel-like look to the game. But I have no idea what story the game is trying to tell you. If there's some kind of like 
lore uh, passage in the manual or something. I'm, I've missed it. It's basically like you're building a city in the future, but also there's secret societies and mythological things and maybe some magic. I don't really know what's going on, but it's a tableau building type of experience. The setup couldn't be simpler to explain. Each round, you're going to uh, do it, go through a card drafting phase. You'll be handed uh, seven cards. You'll pick one and pass it. And then eventually, after a few rounds, you'll end up with a hand of seven cards. And on these cards, there is a cost to build each thing, each building or piece of technology that you're wanting to add to your city. There's also... Uh, a, at the bottom of the card, it shows you what rewards you get. Most of them will generate for you some type of resource moving forward. They'll generate, they'll contribute to your economy, or may, or some of them will even give you a one-time bonus of uh, uh, a wild resource or a general or a financier, which is a little uh, bonus point mechanic in the game. Uh, or on the right side of the card, there is. Uh, it indicates what you will get if you scrap the card. If you decide you don't want to build it and you just want to recycle this, it will generate for you a single uh, resource. And so each round is a simple uh, decision of what stuff do I want to scrap for resources and what do I want to try to build to either contribute to my uh, economy or for victory points. Once you've made your decisions, you'll move through an income phase uh, in sequence. Uh, there are several different types of uh, little colored cubes that represent the resources that you will earn based on uh, what kind of income you have. And uh, once the round is completed, you just rinse and repeat. That's basically It's a Wonderful World. Draft your cards, decide what you want to build, decide what you want to scrap, uh, make your income, build more stuff, rinse and repeat. Four rounds later, the game is over, which is probably the most remarkable thing. And the first thing I want to say about the game is it is exactly the right length. It doesn't overstay its welcome. It's a really fun puzzle, a really compelling hook, and the game ends at just the right time and doesn't overstay its welcome. It does a perfect job of being just the right amount of time. One of the interesting things about engine builders is that most engine builders have this feeling where you finally get your engine created, you're at the point where you feel like you can do something and the game ends. Like if you're playing above and below, you feel like, oh well I I, I finally got what I wanted. Now wait, what do you mean that what do you mean the game's already over? I thought we were still there's another couple turns, right? You know, like a lot of the, like when you're playing wingspan, you know, especially early on, you feel like you're trying to build cards and all of a sudden you're at the final round and you're still trying to fill out your you know your your bird mat and it's like, okay, well what happened? So it's like there's this kind of like a it's not unsatisfying, but it can be difficult, especially at first, to like feel like you're getting enough done with this game. But even you know, like the first time I played it correctly, it felt like this game managed to take that and fix that problem. Yeah, I was thinking about it in contrast to a game like Viticulture. Viticulture is a really slow engine, I feel like, whatever you play. It takes a little while for you to start. Uh, you know, Viticulture is this great worker placement game that simulates running a winery and making wine. But it's a slow boil. You've got to, like, you know, plant some fields, harvest the grapes, put the grapes in, a, in your grapery. What do you put grapes in? I don't know. Put your, put your grapes in a thing that you store the grapes in. And then you like age, then you make the wine, and then you age the wine. And then like, it really is like several turns later, you actually sell the wine and make the victory points that you started. So the payoff of the engine is really a long investment. And, you know, that's not at all a knock against Viticulture. It's a very satisfying game, but you kind of got to get there. And it's a it's a couple hours of, of gameplay to get to the really satisfactory like end stage where you're like yeah my little winery is making wine i'm making money things are happening and it's a wonderful world that is compressed down to as much as just like a single round because this is the ingenious hook to uh it's a wonderful world when you make a card it contributes to your income in the exact same round that is played so to walk you through it in a little more detail if you are able to build a card in that scrapping phase just after you have uh, completed the card drafting, you've got your hand of cards. If you scrap a few and you get a couple of uh, pieces of income from that, if, it'll, if, if you're able to build a card instantly and you put it in your tableau, it'll start contributing income for you immediately in the income phase of that round. And then that card, if, if you're able to then make more cards using that extra income, 
they will contribute later in the same round. So within this exact same round, your engine can kind of like come alive and you start to get more and more resources coming in, more cards are getting played. One of the most satisfying things in It's a Wonderful World is in that card drafting phase when you start doing the math and realizing, okay, wait a minute. If I build this card in the scrap phase, it'll make two blue cubes. And if I use those two blue cubes, I can make this card, and that card's going to let me make another card the next round. And when it all starts to like work, it's super satisfying. It's kind of like a, a mobile game that's just like clicks that endorphin rush in your head of just like, you know, just the right way where you're like, yes, this is really, really fun. Every single turn does that good job of exactly what you're saying, filling that sense of accomplishment. The cards themselves, the cost is divided into a bunch of different boxes with the resources required. And when you put the cards down to build them, as you produce the resources, you fill up the boxes. And so it's a progression of watching these boxes slowly fill up, especially the really big cards, the one that gives you the major points at the end of the game are gonna have a lot of hard resources. But as you go through, you get to that turn four and you make that final burst of production, all of a sudden all those boxes fill up and you put that last cube down. It's such a satisfying feeling to finally get that all done and to see that come together. Like you said, to see that engine kind of build itself in a way. And I think that's that's why we wanted to talk about this one, you know, and I know some people have, you know, some people have talked about how this game is kind of, you know, in the cult of the new and it'll kind of go away after a while and it's not as good, but I, I definitely think this game deserves to be where it is right now just because it managed to make the engine building mechanic a lot more fast paced than you normally find it. Absolutely. I, uh, I've been thinking about this game. I've played it, I don't know, four times now. And the, the two things that really strike me about it are, I, I, I think you can't uh, understate how uh, important it is that the game is quick to play. I think like a lot of game groups that play board games as a hobby, we play a lot of heavy games that could run in excess of an hour, even two hours on occasion. Big, complex, meaty games uh, that uh, take a long time to kind of do what they're trying to do, take a long time to resolve. It's just really refreshing to sit down with a delicious appetizer of a game, like a game that does a whole thing in about 30 to no more than 45 minutes. That, I think, is uh, really valuable in a board game landscape that's getting increasingly dominated by big box experiences. Uh, when you think about what's coming out of Kickstarter these days with these huge games full of minis, just to be able to sit down with a hand of cards and some plastic cubes and have a really fun experience, I think that's... I think that's something every game group needs. And I think this is a game that could come out like frequently as like a, I, I, I don't think it's fair to call it a filler game. Like it's deeper than that, but it's such a short game that it could easily serve as like a first course in a gaming evening or a palate cleanser at the end. I think the length of it is, is an important distinction. The other thing is really that endorphin rush of how satisfying it is. It is a game that your choices pay off right away and that's really cool to experience and so when you have a good round and it's a wonderful world when you are able to draft a a great hand of cards and then actually execute and build several things and watch your economy get like a little bit stronger a little bit better that's awesome it just clicks so good in your brain there's not a lot of super deep strategy in that game but it is kind of there's some clever things with the scoring that i think kind of elevates it like some of the cards that you build just score you flat amount of victory points this is worth two points at the end of the game this is worth three but some of them have a modifier like this card is worth two times the number of yellow cards you're able to build or this card is worth three times the number of generals you're able to acquire so suddenly cards like that really change the game for you. And now you're suddenly driving toward a particular, trying to acquire particular types of cards or assets. And so that becomes like a real race because that can push your luck a, a bit because it is a card drafting game. You might not get the cards you need passed over to you to like meet that objective. So that becomes really risky to mix it up even further. There are two modes of play. There's a, you can play the mode where everyone has the same starting income or you can play an asymmetrical mode where everyone has different starting income and different like in-game bonuses for each faction to kind of further add some depth to it. So it's a short game, but it's deep, has a good amount of replay value, and is really, really satisfying. It's a wonderful game to play. It's in many ways 
well, not the opposite. It's definitely a, res- uh, a response to us talking about Parks, where Parks is very much elevated by its theme. This game, I think, succeeds despite its theme. While not dragging it down, is definitely not adding to its success. But this is definitely a game that I would recommend heartily if you're excited in a very meaty but quick game to play. Yeah, I, th- I do kind of want to elaborate a little bit on that about how it contributes to the overall discussion about themes and games. We've talked a lot about theme. We did a whole episode on theme. Uh, I do think themes are really important, but It's a Wonderful World is almost like the exception that makes the rule. It does have a very murky, ambiguous theme. It's just vaguely futuristic, city building, weird stuff is going on, but it doesn't really tick off any of the things of what I consider to be thematic. I don't know who I am in the game, and I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing, and I don't really know what's going on. But for some reason, with this game, that's all okay. Again, I think the reason why you're not dragged down by that is because the game doesn't overstay its welcome. I think if it were any longer, I think the lack of compelling theme would start to drag it down. Uh, The central gameplay hook is so satisfying that it doesn't really matter that I don't know why I'm building an icebreaker and uh, opening the Tomb of the Lost Ark on the same turn. Like That doesn't make any sense to me, but that's fine because I'm getting these colorful cubes. I will say also the game in its own way kind of has really compelling design the way Parks does. It has nice, bright visual uh, design on all the cards, really cool art. Even if you don't know what's going on, you do find yourself looking at all these pictures, trying to piece it together in your mind. And the game uses as resources those little pandemic-style translucent cubes that look like little lozenges or candies. Those are an understated uh, board game component. Games that use those little cubes. They're fun to look at. They're fun to hold. They're fun to collect a little handful of them. It is just a nice game to play around with, even if the theme is completely you know, transparent. And so it does kind of show you that as much as theme can elevate a game, it sometimes isn't necessary. Sometimes you just need enough of a theme to kind of string together what you're doing and, and to make it fun. So those are the three games that we thought were worth talking about, and we would definitely recommend playing all of those at some point if you're interested in just a really thematic experience or a fun experience or a real crunchy experience, whatever really floats your boat here. I'm sure we'll get to at some point talk about the other games we played over the holidays, but looking forward next time, we're actually going to be doing a review of a fairly recent game, and we're going to be talking about a game that broke matt in a way i have never seen a game break you ever uh i'm still not emotionally recovered from playing uh pendulum the newest game from stonemeyer probably the most uh divisive game that we've brought to the table in a while i think some of the group liked it i think some of us didn't i think all of us are still processing how to play it it is a wild one so come back uh for the next episode for an in-depth discussion of what i think is probably one of the most interesting uh games to come out of a major publisher in a long time so we'll be talking about that next episode for sure I do want to thank everybody who is listening to us now in 2021. We really both enjoyed getting to start this podcast, and we have some really exciting ideas for the coming year and some stuff we're going to do. So um, if you enjoyed us, definitely shoot us a review. Let us know what you thought. Like us on iTunes. That helps us be visible to more people. Let's just get out there. Or just contact us. Let us know what you thought. What were your favorite games that you played over the holidays? Matt, how can people get in touch with us? You can find us on Instagram at Dice Pirates. Uh, that's the best place to find us. You, you can also uh, look us up on Twitter and Facebook if you want, but our main hangout is Instagram. Uh, give us a follow, like and comment on our posts. Send us a message. We will actually talk back to you in real life. We look forward to hearing from you, and we're excited to see you next time here on the Dice Pirates. See ya. Thank you.